Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, however you listen to the show. We want to thank you for joining us here on Suspense Radio Inside Edition. Today is June the 3rd. Oh, my God, I put June the 2nd up for the day. Today is June the 3rd. I'm losing my time. I've just become a grandfather about a month ago, and time no longer ceases to exist, or it just goes really damn fast. So, again, we want to thank you all for listening. We've got a fabulous show for you today, 60 Minutes. We are going to have the writing team of Kathleen McFall, uh, McFall and Clark Hayes on talking about their latest book, Bonnie and Clyde Resurrection Road, followed by author Kendra Elliott talking about A Merciful Truth, her latest book. We also want to remind everybody, of course, that all the shows here on Suspense Radio are brought to you by uh, Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information. This Tuesday, we have on the, I guess, what would that be, the 6th, if I get my days right, um, we're going to have a roundtable discussion. It's going to be me and Jeff Ayers on Beyond the Cover with Allison Brennan and John Land. So the four of us are going to uh, get into whatever and wherever into the world of publishing and writing and give you some inside information of things, especially from two authors that have been in it for so long and uh, sold you know, countless amount of books. So that's going to be fun to listen to. Um, and then, of course, the Story Blender, along with um, – the uh, other Inside Edition we're going to have on June 24th, so we'll be back on June 24th, and we're going to have probably a two-hour show. We are booking it up with uh, a lot of guests, and then Thriller Fest comes in July. We're going to be in PNWA the end of July, so a lot of things coming out in the summer. So let's just jump in here to our first guest again. They are the writing team of their latest book. It is called Bonnie and Clyde. It is Resurrection Road. It is available now. You can go on Amazon and pick it up for yourself. Um, the book uh, just came out May 15th, so it's new. And I actually got an email about this, and I started reading from Kathleen, and she emailed me, and she was like, you know, this is uh, what we got. This is what we're doing. Hey, check us out. And I thought it was a great idea, and I love talking about history and, and things that happened um, in those kinds of settings. So Kathleen and Clark, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you guys doing? We're doing very well. Thanks for having us. Hi, John. Thanks so much. We're happy to be here. Appreciate it. Yes, again, thank you so much for contacting me. It was great to be able to, uh, you know, reach out and see because there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there, there's so many books that are being published nowadays. I mean, we can't keep up with everything. We get about 10,000 books a year just to review. And oh so it's great when we're able to kind of see something a little outside of the normal path. We love to see, I love historical fiction. History is one of my favorite subjects. And of course, Bonnie and Clyde is one of those stories that always seems to come around and people always talk about they've been involved in so many things whenever you hear you know of um you know whether it's a male or a female doing something whatever body and clyde is always referenced it's like ah oh, the modern body and clyde you know you've seen that in the show so tell us a little bit about uh you know the book um body and clyde resurrection road uh you know maybe the history about it what you got going on 
Well, you know, we're pretty excited about this one, and thanks again for having us on and for, you know, letting us rise above those 10,000 that you get every, however often you get those 10,000 books. Gosh, it's just an enormous number of books published each year, and it's, it's a challenge for writers and people who care about literature to keep up with it all. So Bonnie yeah. and Clyde Resurrection Road, we're really excited about this, and as you said, it was just published a couple of weeks ago, and it reimagines the life of Bonnie and Clyde. So as you may know, since you said you're kind of a history buff, they were killed in 1934 in a pretty vicious um, ambush. And pictures of their photographs of their car are pretty famous at this stage. You know, the shot-up car is just everywhere. So what we did was we decided to think about what if all that charisma, what if all that um, intrigue that so enthralled the nation at the time of their um, exploits as well as, you know, now almost a century later, what if all that charisma had somehow been channeled in a different direction? And we reimagined their lives from the moment right before that shootout to 1984. The book opens with a now quite elderly Bonnie Clyde standing Bonnie, sorry, quite elderly Bonnie Parker, standing by the side of an open grave where she is burying her now elderly and deceased husband, Clyde Barrow. So what you learned from the very beginning of the book is that they, they lived. They, they were alive for 50 more years. And then the book uh, takes off from that moment and just at a rapid pace and takes you through what they did from 1934 up through 19, the 1980s, and it turns out they were covert agents. And they were, as we like to say in the tagline, saving democracy one bank robbery at a time. <laughs> so I'm now, gonna, Clark, I'm going to pick it up. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 go ahead. I'm going to hear what you guys say. I was just going to just sort of build on that a little bit. So the whole sort of conceit of the book is, uh, when we started looking at today's economic uh, landscape and sort of the wealth inequality and the sort of, uh, you know, the, the feeling that the common man, the, for, the forgotten man isn't getting his share, it was a sort of a natural fit with the, with the, you know, the 1930s and coming right out of the Great Depression. And, uh, you know, both Bonnie and Clyde were re- really products of poverty. They grew up uh, near Dallas, uh, and it was just the conditions were just, the, were just brutal. There were still Hoovervilles. There were still people standing in soup lines. And we started thinking that, you know, part of the part of the attachment people had to them or to the myth and mystery of Bonnie and Clyde is that, you know, they said, we're not going to take it. We're just, we're not going to be poor. We're not going to go to jail, which is a, there's a horrible sort of uh, prison pipeline in those days. They said, we're not going to do it. We're going to take our guns. They actually literally attacked one of the jails that uh, Clyde had been imprisoned in and brutalized in. And they sort of went on the run and, you know, our, from, from our perspective, they were these two characters that uh, were, they sort of poked their finger in the eye of the, of the system and said, we're going to do our own thing, even if it costs us our lives, and we're going to stay in love and we're going to go on the run. So we sort of built on that and then had these two sort of defiant, angry, you know, young lovers uh, basically kidnapped by, by a government agency and given the option of, hey, you can atone for the horrible things you've done by helping to save democracy, or uh, we're going to kill you. And so uh, they, they picked saving democracy reluctantly uh, and got involved in trying to protect the, the president, FDR, from a cabal of wealthy industrialists who were set on overturning the uh, New Deal. <laughs> 
and basically keeping the sort of poverty system in place and uh, continuing to make money off the backs of the, the forgotten man. And see, and that's the other kind of little twist that's involved with the story is like you just said, you know, you're talking about a time of American history, 1934, where, you know, the stock market had crashed in 29, so we're five years away from that, but the country is in such despair, and there's such a, uh, a time when things could be ripped apart and gone either direction. And so when you're writing about an era like that that's now, what, 87 years ago, I think, is, if my math is right, or something to that effect, or 84 years. Right. Um, so when you're writing about something that's that far away and, you know, you haven't uh, lived it, but you had to just kind of read it, how difficult was it for you to kind of be able to use that time frame and bring that realism to, you know, the story to kind of make sure that people felt like they were back in 1934? Well, you know, um, that's a really great question. Thank you. And uh, I think that um, uh, we were able – we did we did do a lot of research. And, and Clark is actually originally from Texas, so he has um, some experience in that, era, in that era, area to begin with. But we did a great deal of research. I mean, there's a lot of books out there, not just about Bonnie and Clyde, but about the Depression, about what caused the Depression. The photographic evidence is pretty, pretty significant. You know, the WPA uh, took on a, a great deal of effort to document that era. And there's a lot of contemporary writers have, who have looked back at the Dust Bowl and, and about other um, um, union organizing activities, uh, many of the things that happened under FDR that are quite well documented. So I, I think that um, we were lucky in that regard to have so much source materials drawn. I think sort of getting back to what Clark was saying, though, there's also, from an economic standpoint, there's a certain number of parallels to today's world that allowed us to extrapolate from a, from a character standpoint, to understand what people might have been going through in that era. While we don't have Hoovervilles in the sense that they had in the 1930s, and the unemployment rate at this part in at this time in our history is not nearly as high. You know, during the 2008 um, recession, it got pretty close, and certain certainly income inequality issues and trends are are similar now to the Great Depression. So there are aspects of the economic uncertainty in that era that still exists that, that can be extrapolated to that to today um, to allow us to sort of mine the character and the state of mind of our main um, protagonists, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. You know, and so in the, you know, and when you have that era, because you have that era of where the gangsters and the things were coming on and, you know, you had Dillinger and you had Capone and you had, you know, that kind of, what, 15 to 20 year maybe cycle when you had those gangsters coming in. What gravitated you to Bonnie and Clyde instead of maybe picking somebody else for the story? Right. So uh, that's a great question. I think part of it is uh, when you really think about those gangsters, uh, they were driven by um, what I would call uh, a desire to get rich. So when you when you really think about how they made money in those days, it was uh, organizing around uh, bootlegging during Prohibition, which is really just, uh, if you want to call it this, just a, a smart business decision, although brutal at times. They and really, criminal. And criminal. They really just wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, they're trying to make money off the system. We felt that Bonnie and Clyde had a had a different approach, and their approach was to be free. Sure, they were stealing money, and they were, and ultimately they were criminals. 
let's be let's be a hundred percent clear on that. We're not trying to uh, glorify violence or anything like that. They were criminals and they killed people in cold blood, but they didn't do it just to make money. And so, our book gave us uh, you know the, the the way we approached it was they were products of poverty, and they were motivated by something let's call it a sense of freedom, uh, trying to get out from under a system that had failed so many. And they were also just madly in love. So uh, we felt that giving them a chance to sort of atone for their criminality and then building on the aspects that, uh, that still resonate with people today, the sort of pursuit of freedom and the, and the, and the romance uh, helped make them stand out in a field of memorable sort of, you know, characters from the, the historical American history. You know, and I'm going to add um, uh, or amplify a little bit that love component. Um, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, I think part of what the enduring appeal is, not just that they bucked the system, but was that how devoted they were to one another. So they're different than the other gangsters you mentioned, John, because I think that they had an element of um, passion that people – can relate to and frankly aspire to putting aside all the criminal activity and you know Clark and I are a husband and wife team that write together and so there's a natural affinity to write also about um, a couple versus just a single uh, gangster dude (laughs) (laughs) with his lovely mall with his lovely mall I'm going to add one more thing too because I think one of the things that really cemented them in the American imagination at the time did have to do with the romance, but it was also really the sort of titillating, salacious nature of, of their sexual relationship at a time when, you know, they weren't married and uh, men and women traveling together uh, were, uh, you know, seen as somewhat of a, you know, was frowned upon. So it was sensational. It was sensational. There were these, these two young, attractive, uh, you know, man and woman who were clearly sexually involved at a time when no one talked about it. So I think that too, sort of uh, that and the, Violence, of course, and the and the and the freedom that they aspired to are sort of the three things that uh, cemented them to the to the American psyche, and they're the three things that, that drew us to them as well. It was really you fascinating know, and, to learn about them. Yeah, and you know, and the one thing also is when you're trying to take like a villain, of course, like you said, you know, they are villains. I mean, they did shoot people, they killed innocent people, or you know, and and they did kill people, so you're having to kind of take them as that kind of a villain, but you're having to kind of now rework them into the story to where maybe they're not the villain per se. And how difficult is that to kind of have to change maybe the persona of how people kind of look um, at them when they read the book, thinking one way, but but then it kind of is transformed into like another way? Well, you know, I think that that's, you know, ultimately something about the hero's journey. And we, by allowing them to basically escape the death that everybody knows they had, but now we've created an alternate um, reality for them where they escape that death. They also have to go through a period of um, coming to an understanding of what their criminal ways were. So the book not only talks about they were terrible villains, but puts them on a path to atonement for the things that they did. So it becomes not just a story about Bonnie and Clyde and not just a story about love and not just a story about uh, the sort of economic disparity that can cause people to make decisions that may seem um, 
wrong or criminal, but they're desperate. It's also about can we as human beings overcome the mistakes that we make? Can we actually atone for the things that we do that damage other human beings? Or is that really not possible? So the book and the series, actually, because this is the first of what we expect to be at least three books, mm. takes the characters through that process. I'm going to add just a little bit to that as well. Uh, I think one of the ways uh, agree with everything Kathleen said, of course, and then one of the one of the interesting ways is by framing the book uh, as it opens to see this, you know, sort of elderly woman who is uh, grieving Great, yeah. grieving the death of her husband immediately creates sort of a sense of, well, maybe they weren't just stereotypical, uh, you know, salacious uh, bandits. You know, they uh, they had a regular life and they loved each other and now she's really sad that he's not in it. And then from that, we were able to sort of jump backwards into the, um, into the, into the past and slowly across the, across the book, uh, help them help readers grow with them as they start to learn the, the depth of, uh, you know, the damage they've done and the people they've hurt along the way. Very interesting. I mean, that's, see, when you guys got together to to write this, how did that kind of come about? I mean, did you guys know each other for for quite some time? Was this something that you know you 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 know did, was it Kathleen? Was it Clark? You know, who's the one who kind of thought of this, or, or was it kind of a collaborative effort? Give us a little bit about you know how that how that kind of came together. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start off here and I'm gonna tee it up because uh, Bonnie and Clyde is really Kathleen's idea. And so I'll let her talk about that, but I'm going to sort of tee up how we came to be uh, romantic and writing partners. So we've been together about over 20 years or so now. Uh, and we started, uh, we had, we had a terrible, fiery, horrific breakup early on. And Is that a then, book? No, that it should be. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a horrific breakup. Uh, we had about a two year period where we didn't talk to each other. We, our paths crossed again. We realized that we still were, you know, deeply, madly, dysfunctionally in love with each other. And so we decided to uh, meet and see if we could sort of work out a framework where we wouldn't crash and burn again. So uh, the, the, the founding story is we met in a truck stop in Madras, Oregon, uh, and we were talking about ways to uh, see if we could uh, make our relationship work. We thought we were both writers. We've both been writing for years, so even you know before each other, so 30-plus years. We decided we'd try to write something together to see if we could channel some of that you know, crazy, creative, dysfunctional energy into something good. And so we came up with the concept for the Cowboy and the Vampire series. We literally sketched it out in crayon on the back of a placemat at a truck stop in Madras, Oregon. Uh, Kathleen was living in Portland at the time. I was living in uh, Bend. Uh, Madras was halfway between. It was neutral territory. And so we started writing together. We started, this was, this was many years back. I didn't even have a computer. We were writing by hand, sending each other, you know, pages back and forth by the mail. Uh, as it turned out, uh, we had a pretty good concept. We worked really well together. The book, uh, the book started coming together. Uh, so we decided to give our relationship a shot. And about the same time, we submitted the manuscript, and we had this weird, crazy, almost instant interest from a publisher, uh, and which sort of spoiled us because we thought it was going to be easy after that. It was not easy. <laughs> uh, 
And so we ended up writing uh, four books in the cowboy and vampire uh, collection together. And they were, you know, they've been won some awards are really fun. And based on that, uh, we decided to try uh, something different. So I'm going to pass it over to Kathleen and let her explain how we got from the cowboy and the vampire to Bonnie and Clyde. That's a big, tall order. That sounds like a little stretched on that one. So he, he set you up, Kathleen, <laughs> but I don't know if he set you up, like, in a good way. I don't know, yeah. I don't know. It's just like a man. Let the woman do the hard labor. I'm still going to, I'm at least still going to compliment Clark. I think he captured that, you know, description of our early relationship pretty well. It was pretty dysfunctional and I feel pretty. Like Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Maybe there's the transition there right go. there. So uh, the reason actually we, you know, we, we decided after the fourth book in the Cowboy and Vampire series that we were ready to pause on that. You know, we started writing that, you know, a good 15 years ago. And it was when we started writing the Cowboy and Vampire series, it was way before Twilight. And the first book actually came out in 1999. And we had a long pause in that before writing the second book for, you know, domestic life reasons. And, um, you know, so it was new. It was different when we wrote the Cowboy and Vampire series. It was like, oh, my gosh, vampires. Who's talking about them except Anne Rice at the time? And uh, when we came back to it about a decade later, we discovered that, you know, the whole world had discovered vampires. And there was just kind of an explosion of them. And so we, we, we wrote the next three books because we love the concept and we're really, we think it's a terrific series. But we also decided, you know, let's put the vampires aside for a little while. But we wanted, of course, to continue writing together. So why Bonnie and Clyde? Uh, to be honest, I was reading a book by Emma Klein. I don't know if you've read it, called The Girls. And it came out as a pretty big, you know, hit about, I don't know, less than a year or so ago. And in that book, if you're familiar with it, she, it's a good book. It's very well written. Um, it, it centers around a, a character that's supposed to be based on Charles Manson. And uh, she, she never actually names him, but it's very clear from the, the book that it's about Charles Manson. And the book itself is about the girls who sort of were surrounding him as an uh, entourage. And um, at that moment, I was, it caused me to ponder the whole nature of how, you know, evil and criminal people become lodged in the American psyche. And why was that? And I just kept pondering that more and more. And then suddenly, just out of the blue, um, I, Bonnie and Clyde popped into my head and I started thinking about, well, why is Bonnie and Clyde, why are Bonnie and Clyde so, uh, why are people so fascinated with them? And then one thing led to the other and we decided we wanted to do what I honestly thought, no offense to Emma Klein, she's a great writer, but I thought hadn't been done in that book, which was to excavate the nature of um, what causes people to be evil, what causes them to be um, criminal and can they atone as we talked about earlier. And so that led, you know, to, and, and it had the, what we also like and found that worked for us in Cowboy and the Vampire. It had a couple um, as, a, uh, as the main characters. Do you still, do you still and, have time or we still have? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got, we, got about, we got a couple minutes here left. So what I want to kind of do is I want to let you know, I want to get to you to let us know when you say this is the first book, what do you have coming up with this series? What is your plan moving forward now with this series? Well, we have at least uh, two more books uh, planned in the series that will, that will, like this first book, sort of move back and forth in time. 
Uh, we've got two significant historical events that we will be anchoring the books the next two in. So the, the first one is anchored in the New Deal uh, and sort of uh, uh, is built off of uh, – it's a, it's a fascinating thing that, truthfully, I didn't know until we – and I'm a history major, so I was surprised by this. And, but until we researched the book, an assassination attempt against uh, the, the president – while he was a candidate at the time uh, by a, a man named Zangara, who uh, during the assassination attempt also killed uh, the mayor, they think accidentally killed the mayor of Chicago. And that was sort of the, the uh, jump off point for this book as we, as we looked at the New Deal. And we've got two similar uh, events in history that we'll be looking at uh, in the 30s and 40s for the next two books as Bonnie and Clyde uh, continue to sort of uh, develop as, let's call them, covert agents um, and, uh, you know, do their part to atone for their past and sort of help preserve American democracy. So do you have a set number of books or is this going to go until you think it's, until you think the story's done? Well, I'm not sure that Clark and I are in agreement on that point. <laughs> oh, shit, here we go. Uh, I think that we have a minimum of three, and so okay. we're happy. We're we're, we're we're committed to three books. We have those three. The first one is done, obviously, and the second and third are we're almost done with the second one, the first draft at least, and we have all those three plotted out. And we'll see what happens at that point. You know, we'll see if we tire of it. We'll see what the reception is, and we'll go from there. I want. I I think this is a. I think this is a very promising series, and I just I love that it has so much of the things that uh, resonate with readers. It's got thrills, it's got suspense, it's got uh, sex and romance, it's got action, it's got a little bit of comedy. I mean, it's pretty uh, serious topics, but there uh, there's some comedic moments. One of the reviewers of the East Oregonian called it cheeky. Yeah, that's oh. a word I like a lot. It's got some cheeky humor. Okay. And we've That'll got work. all of American we've got all of American history to sort of pull from, so it's this great palette of of sure. events that resonate with people driven by two iconic characters. Awesome. Well I tell you what, guys, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, hearing the story, hearing what you got going on and with the book, of course, Bonnie and Clyde, Resurrection Road. It is out now. Uh, make sure you also if you want more information, go to pump jackpress.com for more information on this book and then you mentioned of course Cowboy and Vampire you have other books, you have other things and that's probably the best place for people to stay in touch with you on the series and how it's progressing and, and things like that too so we want to thank you again for coming on, it's been a pleasure and wish you nothing but the best and looking forward to see what you got going on in the future with these books Thank you so much Hey, Thanks so much John, really appreciate it Alright, you guys have a good one Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that was authors Kathleen McFall and Clark Hayes, and the book is called Bonnie and Clyde, Resurrection Road. Again, it is out now. Check it out. Go to Amazon. Uh, you know, type it in. Search it. Uh, pumpjackpress.com is, ooh, excuse me, is where you will find um, all the information that you want to know about this, and, and, you know, go in and check it out and see what you got going on. We are going to take a short break. We're going to be back here with our next guest, Kendra Elliott. She is going to be talking about her latest book, uh, Merciful Truth, which is the second in uh, a new series of hers. So stay tuned for that, and we will see you in just a second. 
here after the break. Again, we want to thank you all for listening. Now, and again, Kathleen McFall and Clark Hayes and their book, Bonnie and Clyde, Resurrection Road. But now we are joined here with our next guest, author Kendra Elliott. And Kendra has just written a book called A Merciful Truth. It is Merciful Truth. It is the second in the Mercy Kilpatrick series, um, which started with her first one. 
and that was called – oh, i got to get it here in front of me. Um, that was a merciful death. So we want to thank uh, Kendra so much for joining us. So, Kendra, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great this morning, John. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I am, we, I, we had you in the magazine before. We had interviewed you before. I'd never spoken with you, um, I don't believe. So this is great to be able to, you know, finally talk to you and, and catch up on everything that you got going on because you now have a new suspense series, which you've just authored, and it's called A Merciful Truth, which is the second one. A Merciful Death is the first one. But this is a little bit, you know, outside of, you know, the other series that you had going on. So you had a novella, and then you had – you know, Callahan and McLean, and then you had the Bone Secret series. So this is something a little different for you. So tell us a little bit about A Merciful Truth and, you know, the Mercy Kilpatrick series. Well, Mercy Kilpatrick is an FBI agent that was raised in a family of survivalists. They were preppers in Central Oregon. And Her family is not happy that she has gone on to work for the government, especially for a law enforcement agency with the government because they are quite anti-government. So she was thrown out of her family and went on to do this law enforcement job. And now she's back in Central Oregon and she's in conflict with her family. Um, When I was trying to come up with a concept for the series, I was trying to put together what would create the biggest conflict? What would be the hardest thing for this FBI agent to stay true to her job, but throw in lots of issues with her family and the people around her? Um, it's, she actually appears in my Callahan and McLean series. So my readers will have met her before and targeted. So it's a little bit of an extension of that. I like to tie together characters from all my series. Um, I've just finished writing the third book in this series, and I brought in characters from my Bone Secret series and from my Callahan and McLean series in this one. Because readers get excited when they see people pop up that they don't expect, but they know who they are. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, readers love to kind of see those kind of cross-pollinations, uh, if you want to call it, of characters and other series come into a new series like oh wow this is because then they have the sense that they're all kind of you know tied together and that the world you're creating is basically one giant world it might be in three different parts but it's still all interconnected and so when you decided to kind of branch off and do this mercy kilpatrick series was it something that you were um you know, making sure that that's kind of the world you wanted to create by making sure you brought them all in? Or was it an afterthought after the fact, like, you know what, I think it'd be really cool if I brought them in? It was a little bit of an afterthought. I had pitched the series to my publisher a few years ago, and so I knew it was coming, but I still had some other books to finish in my other series. And as I was writing the fourth book in the Callahan series, I thought, you know what? I need to bring her in to introduce her to my readers. And so that when they do go to this other series, they'll recognize her and say, oh, hey, wait a minute. It makes the reader feel like they have an inside um, glimpse of into the books where a reader who's coming in fresh isn't going to realize that, oh, we already know about this character, but my older readers will be like, ha, I know things that new readers don't know about this character. So it, was, it wasn't planned, but I have um, <laughs> tied it all together anyway because it was so successful. 
my Callahan series is a spin-off from Bone Secrets because mm-hmm. I kept getting letter after letter of people begging me for a secondary characters book. And when I started to write his book, I realized, oh, this is a whole series. I cannot cover him in one book. So he's had four books so far. And I'm not done with that one either. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing. Now, now you put, you know, you, you've done this, and now you've kind of put yourself into, now you're a three-series writer. Um, <laughs> and fans are going to, yeah. and you know fans, they're going to wonder, like, well, why can't she do three books in a year? Come on, you can't give us one a year for each series? I, so it, it's kind of it's going to be kind of a difficult thing now for you to kind of determine and say, okay, you know, how am I going <laughs> to piece these together? Do what I do am two I doing bone next? and then this and then? Yeah. Yes, and I am getting those letters already. Is there going to be another? Is there going to be another Callahan book? Is there going to be another Bone Secrets book? And they keep asking about a secondary character in my Callahan book, saying, "When is he going to get his own book?" And I will get to them. I will. But I can't. Jesus, as soon as I have twenty hands, I'll write them all. Okay, give me a chance. Yes, exactly. But my goal is to eventually do them all, and I do not have any plans to start another new series at all i've got plenty going on here and it's nice because each time i put out a book in an older series the entire backlist um starts selling like crazy Mm -hmm. and you know when you decided again so when mercy kilpatrick you know kind of came out of that secondary character but now the main character how difficult was that for you to kind of have to expand now? Because now basically they came from behind the scenes a little bit and now in front of everything. Was that difficult for you to do? Not at all. Because when I wrote her as a secondary character into the Callahan series, I knew that she would eventually be front and center. And I spent probably two years just thinking about her. I kept having to put her on the back burner and every time I'd have an idea about her series, I would just scribble it down and set it aside because I can only concentrate on one book at a time. And so whenever she would start to crowd my thoughts, I would just scribble it down, set it aside. So by the time I finally got to sit down and write her book, I had this box, I guess you could call it a shoe box, full of little scribbled notes that I just started going through. It's like, oh, I forgot like I had IRS that idea. Oh, that was such a good <laughs> yeah. idea. And yeah. other ideas were like, what was I thinking? No, then throw that one in the garbage. Or hold it for another character, you know. Eh, maybe it'll work for somebody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So when, when characters now are going to see, because now you got book two here, A Merciful Truth, and when they look back mm-hmm. at A Merciful Death and kind of now look forward into this book, What's something maybe that they're going to know that's a little different from Kendra Elliott? You know, did you do something uh, maybe to challenge yourself uh, as a writer, as an author? Did you try to did you try to make a conscious effort to say, hey, you know, I wanted to do a little more scene setting, I wanted to do a little more dialogue or something mm-hmm. different? Is there are they going to notice uh, anything like that, or is it just going to be, you know, is is it not going to kind of be that way? I think it's pretty true to um, my style all along. They're going to get a a different setting. Um, I don't know if you know much about about Oregon, but Portland sits in a valley that's rather wet. And what I did is I moved um, the setting for this one east over the Cascade Mountain Range where it's actually high desert. And so the scenery is a lot different. 
And I had to go over there and refresh my memories about what it was like. We used to vacation there when I was a kid all the time. And when I went back recently, so much had changed, which in the cities anyway, which was really nice because here I had this character returning back home after 15 years and she's seeing all the changes. So I was able to really pull on what I had experienced when I went back after a long time away. But yeah, other than setting difference, I think I, I, um, I wouldn't say there's a lot that's different. My voice is pretty much the same. Um, I dive into my characters the same way. I, I use a lot of emotion with my characters. There is one thing people will notice. Um, when I first started writing, there is usually a sex scene in each book. And I've moved away Ooh. from that in about the last four books. I haven't had any complaints to me, but um, I don't know. I don't think readers are missing it, I guess. Okay. So, and now, was, was there a reason behind it or just? I was no, just tired of writing just, it. Just, it just didn't happen. <laughs> I, I get you. It yeah. just didn't happen. And even it was at the point where it was, the last scene and you can't I would force write it. when I would write a book. No, I would I would skip over it. I'm like, okay, I will come back to that. And it'd be the last scene right. I'd write after the entire book was written. And I realized, okay, I'm this isn't doing anything for me. I don't know if my readers are gonna miss it or not. I started putting out a few books without it and I didn't hear a peep. So I figured, okay, yeah. I'm happy writing how I'm how I'm writing now. Which is kind of shocking you didn't hear a peep because normally if you get mm -hmm. a color wrong, you're gonna hear a peep. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, um, you know, I write a lot of violence. I write a lot of murder. Um, but all I usually hear from my readers about is language. You know, I swear. Oh, my characters swear. Your characters use the F word. That's a sign of a poor writer. And, yeah, that just makes me want to write it more. But no one ever complains yeah. about the children who die or the person who was burned or that sort of thing. But they complain about my character swearing. Which is kind of normal, everyday kind of talk, at least in the police world, of course, and, you know, tense situations. Right. I mean, it, it, people are going to do those things. You almost want to write it back to them in their email. You know, you kind of <laughs> You want to reply so bad, but I just – do. I, I sometimes I'll type up a reply and just for my own sake and then delete it. Like, okay, here's what I would say if I was replying to this person. I was going to, because often yeah. they attack me personally for using this sort and of language. And I never language. understood that. And I don't swear like that. It's my characters. It's not me. It's not me right. personally. Um, and close the book if you don't like it. You know, just yeah. like on TV, I'm, turn the channel if you're watching something you don't like. Yeah, I mean, and, and and I don't understand the, the nitpicking also in some of those things because it's it's about the story and it's about the characters and it's about their believability and it's about the scene and it's about how you're setting everything. So, you know, to kind of pick something out a little like that, it's like, well, you're almost just doing it to be nitpicky and I kind of feel bad that that's mm -hmm. the way that your life goes because you seem to just go around and just are like a nitpicky person. I'm like, that's <laughs> kind of a hard way to live, but... You know, hey, I feel for you, I, and it's like, hey, I get you. Maybe it's a part of OCD. I don't know. I, I think it makes them feel better is what I, I just Probably. have to tell myself. Okay, this person feels a lot better that they wrote this letter to me, and I'll just let it go. I've probably had 
maybe 10, maybe 15 letters in the past five years. And I figure out of three and a half million books, that's not bad. That's so maybe not there's bad. complaints in my, re- in my reviews, but I don't, I don't read my reviews. I figure if yeah. the readers have something they want to tell me, they'll email me. Um, but yeah, that's probably the most I've gotten over the years. So I don't think that's too bad. You know, and in today's day and age of social media where everything is so instantaneous, I mean, you know, the, the book just comes out and all of a sudden, bam, you know, that day you could see 10 or 20, 30 posts, you know, people talking yeah. about it or whatever it is, and then they're doing whatever. But like you said, you know, they pick out certain things and then you start seeing things in the news and you start seeing maybe how people, fans are reacting to things. Do you let that kind of influence maybe, you know, the next book that's going to come out, which you've already kind of labeled a merciful secret, and that might stick and that might not stick. So, um, But do you kind of let that influence, like, your next book? Maybe does it creep into your thoughts about how people are reacting or maybe how the world is and how things are going on? Or do you just say this is, this is the focus that my character has to do, this is the storyline, this is the plot, and this is what I'm going for? Mm-hmm. I try really hard not to let anybody else's voice in my head, which is um, the reason I stopped reading my reviews on Amazon. I think it was with my very first book that came out. Um, I started reading the reviews, but then I realized, you know, that night I'm writing a scene and, oh, someone complained about me using this word, so I'm not going to use that word. So I, I can't, it's too many voices in my head, so I don't, let it affect me and I go out of my way to keep my thoughts to myself um, to not let anybody else affect what I'm going to write or how I'm going to write it what's interesting is when I pitched this series several years ago and a big thing in it is I, I cover a lot of how do you remember when the um the 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 uh, people in eastern Oregon took over the wildlife refuge. Yeah, so, yep, you know they had yeah, their little just, yeah, militia a, thing going on. And year and I was a half right ago, year ago, writing, around that time. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I was right in the middle of writing the first book, and it was so similar to what I was writing at the time, and it was very interesting because I, in fact, I had gone on Facebook, and I'm like, um. So I pitched this idea years ago. I'm not copying what's actually happening in the news right now. <laughs> but I did go and use a lot of – I read everything I could about what was going on in that area. I paid real close attention to how these men spoke, how the law enforcement spoke, how they handled everything. And that, I think, added a lot of flavor into that story. But it wasn't – I was very surprised when it popped up. It's like – oh, here, here is real life, and here I was just writing about it. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that is difficult probably for yourself too is when you're writing about small-time you know, people and you're writing about these things that I guess people like in New York City or Miami or Chicago, I mean, they would never experience because they just can't understand what do you mean these groups of people are doing this for their Mm -hmm. land? Because in urban settings, but in the rural towns, you know, this is kind of how things are. So when you're kind of having to write that rural setting, but you're writing it for an urban person, 
how difficult is it for you to kind of get across to them and make them feel like they're out of the city for those 350 pages and set like, you know, in Eastern rural, you know, rural Oregon? Right. I, I think I didn't realize how people did not know what it was like when the first, um, when the wildlife wildlife refuge was taken over a friend of mine that lived in Chicago said oh my gosh where are the security guards how did they break in they've done all this right and I chimed in and I was like um hopefully the door was locked when someone left that night because there are no security guards there it sits out in the middle of nowhere you know no this is not a city invasion of these men taking over this huge federal building or anything like that. And she was really shocked, I think, to realize that, oh, it was just this little place out in the middle of nowhere. And yes, they had a key somehow, but no, no secure, no armed security guards. No one was protecting this federal building. It wasn't like that at all. So I do my best to cover the setting really well. And Um, I have gotten a couple of emails about, oh, my gosh, do people like this really exist? Um, Because I also go into, have you heard of sovereign citizens? Um, They believe that the government has no right over anything they do, anything. They are free. They don't believe in paying taxes. They don't believe in getting licenses. Um, The federal government has nothing to do with them at all. And so if they are, you know, pulled over on the highway by police, they, oh my gosh, the rhetoric they can use to talk to these officers. I went on to YouTube because some of the officers record their interactions with these people and they just, they cite law after law and they twist them and turn them to make it look like, no, the police cannot interfere with what I am doing. And it's, it's their mindset. They really do exist. It was fascinating. I had no idea that these kind of people existed. And it wasn't actually until I was interviewing a FBI agent um, that, was ha- that handled domestic terrorism in Oregon and he started talking about sovereign citizens and how they are a problem and they tie up the courts with paperwork after paperwork after paperwork over the smallest things and he told me to go go online search for sovereign citizens and just listen to the sorts of things they have to say he says it's just stunning the way they can talk and try to convince you that you know the federal government should not exist and we are free to drive on our roads. We don't have to pay for our roads. We shouldn't have to pay for anything. It was very eye opening to me. Yeah. And that, you know, and that's uh, something that I guess people, like you said, like in the urban settings, they just, it, they, 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 you just can't really wrap your brain around it. I mean, of course <laughs> people see Oregon and they're like, Oh, it's a very foresty rainy state. And it's like, um, mm-hmm. there's a, big desert area out there in in Oregon, you know, you have to go visit it. It's not all kindergarten cop um, setting on Astoria (laughs) or the Goonies. It's like, that's what the state is about. And and I think that that's great when, you know, when you, when you bring that setting into your book is basically a character. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. uh, You know, all wrapped around. Yes. I've often referred to setting as a character in my books. 
Um, people are fascinated with the Pacific Northwest. I get a lot of email about that, how they just love to hear about the descriptions, about the people, and that sort of thing. And I've tried to make it very clear in this series how different it is on the other side of um, the Cascade Mountain Range. Um, essentially, our state is red on one side and blue on the other side. I mean, there's obviously right. pockets of blue and red here and there, but it's a whole different world just 100 miles away. Yeah, and it's the same in the state of Washington. Um, you know, you get yes. the same thing when you go away from Seattle and you go out more towards Spokane. So there's a lot of those pockets. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the, the Pacific Coast itself is kind of – it kind of reminds me of like one giant state. It's kind of, it's kind of very eclectic in, in the way that it is. But it's like one giant state from California, Oregon to Washington kind of going up. Um, it, things teen, you know, tend to be the same. So looking forward now, like we said, you know, you've got three series going on, and you've got a lot of people that are going to be very much anticipating your next couple releases. What does your schedule look like for the next couple years with these series that you have? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to release – Two books a year, which is what I've been doing for the last couple of years. Uh, the third Mercy book comes out in January. My publisher has me on a January-June schedule for the next several years. Okay. Um, my plan was to write four Mercy books in a row and then do a Bone Secrets and then a Callahan book. But I'm thinking I might do five Mercy books first before I return to the other two series. And then I oh. my goal was kind of, of to off, rotate. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I'm trying to uh, keep people happy by bringing in some of these older characters into the book so they feel like they aren't missing right. out too much. That's good. But yeah, I just had another letter this morning. You know, oh, <laughs> this character, when's he getting his own book? Yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Yeah, do you, but I can't you just write want to put up an FAQ you just, you just want to kind of put I up did. an FAQ on your website, and people will be like, so and here's question number one. When is XXX getting their next book? Okay, so you fill in the blank. I'll get to it when I have the freaking time. <laughs> There's my F word. You know, and so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you, you try to educate fans. I mean, we try to educate fans all the time and just let them know, hey, guess what? The author had no say in who played the character in their movie, so don't yell at them. Right, um, right. You know, the, the author is, does the best that they can, but, you know, two books a year is actually a lot, and people can't understand how two books a year is a lot. Um, mm -hmm. That's a lot. Not everybody's James Patterson that has a writing partner that does a lot of the work. You know, that's a lot. No. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's great. And now the book – Right now that we're talking about comes out Tuesday, June 6th. So if anybody's listening now, you, you can pre-order the book now, but you just got to wait till June 6th before you actually get it. Um, so do you have any – are you going to be on any um, – are you going to be anywhere? Are you going to be on any events coming up, people will be able to see you? What do you ha what, what's your schedule mm -hmm. look like for this release party? Um, I don't plan to go anywhere for this release. Um, <laughs> typically I'm cleaning house on release day because – I've let things slide so bad. Um, mm -hmm. My only um, thing I have planned is until July, I'll be at the Romance Writers Conference in Orlando in July. Oh, nice. um, 
they have a huge signing. There's usually 400 to 500 authors there to at a public signing. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't go around very much. Oh, did we lose you? Nope, I'm oh. still here. Oh, okay, no, there you sorry. go. Sorry, that was it. Yeah, okay. I'm not doing anything exciting for my release, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I might go buy again, a pint of Haagen-Dazs. I have a tiara. But, I'll wear my tiara that day. But people can go to KendraElliott.com. They can find out all the information that you got going on. Um, they can contact you if if you wish to read it and you know there's a and that's and that's probably the best way for them to stay in tune about everything that you got going on um with the books and the series and and wherever you're going to be or whatever news you're going to share mm-hmm. yes i keep my so, website hey, up to date really well yeah it is it's really good and so we want to thank you so much for coming on it was a pleasure to finally speak with you wish you nothing but the best um excited about your latest you know series and you know, good luck keeping that schedule with two books a year, mm-hmm. and uh, can't wait to see what you got going on in the future. So thanks for joining us today, Kendra. Thank you for having me, John. All right. You have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So again, everybody, that is author Kendra Elliott, and the latest book is called A Merciful Truth. comes out June the 6th. If you're listening live now, get the book on Tuesday and pre-order, pre-order it and get it to you. If you're listening to it after June the 6th, Go run over to Amazon and go pick it up. And don't forget to get A Merciful Death, which is the first book in the series. Um, and, you know, you, you want to check out more about those characters, you can always check in the Bone Secret series, her Callahan and McLean series. So everything is kind of tied together. So she's building herself a great little world with all of these characters. So they're all going to kind of be, you know, put together um, in, in more than just one series. So make sure that you visit and check that out. Again, Kendra Elliot, um, that's one t.com for more information. So we want to thank you again, guys, for all listening. It's been a pleasure to speak with Kendra and then Kathleen McFall and Clark Hayes. And, you know, we want to thank you guys for all joining us on here. Of course, get us on iTunes to get the most up-to-date uh, in all the shows put to your right where you, you know, however you want to listen to everything. And we'll be back with Beyond the Cover on Tuesday again. That is our roundtable discussion with um, – Allison Brennan and John Land, Jeff Ayers and I will be hosting that, and we'll be all for just talking about anything and everything. Um, we want to get a little behind the scenes into what the industry and the writing and, you know, some of the editing processes and what's publishing and, you know, and just the trends and, and how everything is kind of just blowing up right now with, with publishing and writing, and you see all these different things going on. We're going to try to give you a little handle about uh, how to maybe navigate through some of those waters. So until next time, everybody, like we say, keep reading. We'll see you all next time. Have a good day. Bye-bye.